This is the History Tavern Podcast. Histories of the American Revolution and War of Independence are often narrowly focused on prominent American leaders or the Continental Army. This focus has often neglected the Atlantic and global scope of the Revolution and the war. In her new book, The Untold War at Sea, America's Revolutionary Privateers, Kylie Holbert talks about American privateers during the American Revolution. Lacking a functioning navy, the Continental Congress turned to privateers to wage war against the British on the high seas. In covering their story, Professor Holbert identifies the global nature of the struggle for American independence and the cultural exchanges produced by the war. Our interview picks up after I ask Professor Holbert what a privateer was. A privateer is a commissioned vessel. In the case of America's revolutionary privateers, they are commissioned either by the Continental Congress or through state commissions, and they are commissioned to attack and take enemy vessels. So they are not pirates. And this is something that oftentimes gets confusing uh, for people is that people think, well, they're they're pirates because they're going out and they're taking ships. Pirates act outside of the law. Pirates are completely, you know, in acting on their own individual behalf. They're not beholden to a government. They don't have authority from a government. Privateers have authority and are officially commissioned by a government during times of war. They're not supposed to act during times of peace, whereas pirates obviously act whenever and wherever they want. Right, right. So, I mean, you bring up another sort of important point and something that I that I learned, obviously. I mean, we've all probably heard about the Continental Congress, some of the debates they had. But can you talk about that process of authorizing a privateer? I mean, it wasn't straightforward, it doesn't seem. And the Continental Congress, weren't, they weren't the only ones involved. This is, like you said, this is happening on a state level as well. Exactly. So it was a debate. You might call it a contentious debate in the Continental Congress about whether or not they should authorize and commission privateers. Part of the reason for this is that there were delegates to the Continental Congress who were involved in trade themselves and felt that it wasn't a a good business practice, in a sense, to attack British trade vessels. Um, There were others who argued, well, we shouldn't focus on privateers. We should focus on building a continental navy. And then there were others still who said, no, no, the British Navy is the most powerful uh, fleet on the seas. And we shouldn't be messing with the seas at all because no chance basically in hell, of of going up against them. And it's interesting, John Adams, of all people, um, I kind of have a soft spot, spot for him, truthfully, but John Adams wanted both privateers and a Continental Navy because he understood that They didn't have the ships. They didn't have the money. um, They didn't have the ability to build a naval fleet quickly. But privateers, because they are privately owned vessels that are then commissioned by the Continental Congress, could go to sea almost immediately because they would be using merchant vessels that had been fitted out as privateers. They would be using ships that were already available. Uh, As time went on, though, the debate started to revolve around manpower and the fact that privateers drew a number of sailors from the Continental Navy because the Continental Navy technically was supposed to be getting paid 
you know, in theory uh, on a schedule, uh, but the return on that was not very big. Whereas for privateers, if you went out on a three month cruise and you took a vessel or two and they came back to port and were deemed a lawful prize, you could have a much bigger payday. So privateers were a, a headache, you could say, for the Continental Congress from the get go. Right. And you and you really underscore that sort of opportunity that's there for potential privateers. I mean, they can almost literally hop right on a ship and and get, you know, sort of get onto the high seas where it seems a little bit more complicated uh, with the Navy. Uh, yeah, sort of, exactly. Yeah. Um, so and, and you go on to talk a little bit more about John Adams, who really sort of has a focus once he becomes president of, of building up the Navy, which is very interesting. Yeah, it's interesting. I think there's a, 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 a line there, a through line for Adams in terms of the importance of sea power. Um, and it, it's interesting because he does have a Navy during I hesitate to talk about his presidency because it doesn't always go very well for, for poor John. But, um, but then his, you know, successor Jefferson allows the Navy to basically languish and rot um, in docks because he doesn't see the Navy and being a sea power as significant, um, which then leads into the war of 1812, where Madison is once again in a, in a way, and the U S is again, forced to turn to privateers, for naval power during the War of 1812, because there is no Navy, because it's been allowed to kind of, I don't want to say disintegrate totally, but it is it is much less than what it was. Um, so that's a struggle that the U.S. has in terms of its um, sea power for, for quite some time in the early republic. Who, this is sort of a big question, but who who became privateers? What kind of people, I mean, talk a little bit about merchants, slave traders. Um, can you just sort of explain, you know, uh, who who was likely to become a, a, a privateer? So this was really interesting about privateers is they, they pulled from across society, from across classes. So yes, um, in terms of outfitters and investors, you had merchants, you had those who were slave traders before the revolution, you know, officially broke out and then war breaks out and it's difficult for merchants and traders to continue their business. Uh, they have the ships, but they don't want to risk putting their merchandise and their goods on those ships. And so rather than let their ships just sit in port doing nothing, they go, well, let me calculate this. If I send out my vessel, there is a chance I could lose my vessel in battle, but there's also a chance that my vessel could go out and capture you know, a, a big prize. And then I would continue to make money rather than, you know, bleeding money during the war. So you've got kind of the, the investors and the outfitters at one level. And then you have um, captains, similar people who had captain ships, uh, merchant vessels, slave vessels, um, slave trade vessels prior to the revolution coming in and saying, hey, I have experience. You want someone with, with experience. You want someone who knows the waters, who's comfortable sailing. And then you have sailors who are coming in and going, well, I know how to sail. It's really not different. I mean, yes, there is a, a risk to life and limb that they take on that's slightly different from you know everyday merchant life. But there are also instances of people who have never sailed 
before. We have journals of um, men who serve on privateers. There's a, a surgeon who's, he's a surgeon on dry land before the revolution, and then he needs to make money to support his family. Um, he signs up for, for a privateering venture, goes on one, comes back and says, I'm never doing this again. Uh, I've, I've had my, <laughs> my fill of privateering. So it's not for everyone. But then there are also instances of combatants who fight in both the land force and the sea force. So whether it's in the Continental Navy or on privateers, there are also those who decide, well, I've been in the Continental Force for a while or, you know, in the militia, I haven't made much money. My brother or my cousin or my friend from down the street just came back from a privateer venture and made a lot of money. I want to get in on that. And they sign up for a privateer venture. So yes, there are those who have experience, but it's also an opportunity for, for those who haven't perhaps gained their sea legs yet to get out to sea. And some love it. And truth be told, some hate it. Um, some have kind of a, a moral uh, fight within themselves in terms of whether or not this is really fair fighting or whether this is the way that the war should be conducted, um, you know, similar to kind of some of those guys in the Continental Congress. So it's, yeah, it, it's it's a venture that draws from a, a wide swath of society. I want to ask you a little bit about challenges as a historian covering this. I mean, you know, when you talk about the Atlantic Ocean and the sea, I mean, it seems to happen in a completely different space than, you know, maybe what most historians are comfortable covering. And, you know, obviously you use a bunch of different sources. You just referred to a journal and, and you know, somebody's words about what happened. And that's probably a great source to use. But I imagine in other cases, you know, you're working off of lists, you know, what was on the ship uh, and you're, you, you know, uh, who was on the ship. And now you've got to do that work of sort of piecing it together and creating a narrative. So can you talk more generally about some of the challenges of, of you know, doing this kind of history? Uh, you know, because I think about somebody, you know, if you're covering a battle, you can at least go to the battlefield. You can see the characteristics of the battle. I mean, I suppose you could go to the Atlantic Ocean and look at the sea, but I don't know that you're going to get much out of that, right? So just talk generally about the challenges of doing this. Yeah, this, um, it's, it's very large in terms of its geographic scope, as you mentioned, which did make it challenging. So I went to historical societies from New England all the way down to South Carolina, Georgia, um, trying to find personal letters, journals, logbooks, newspaper clippings, anything, business records, um, ledgers, anything basically that mentioned privateering, I was trying to comb through. And this is one of the first really recent historical um, studies of privateers, which also made it challenging. I didn't have many other monographs, historical academic monographs to go back and look at. There's there's some popular histories of, of privateers, one or two that have come out um, in the past decade or so, but nothing really concrete in terms of like, hey, you go to the George Washington papers to learn about, you know, Washington and his farming out Mount Vernon. So it it was um 
it was a learning experience for me too. And it was a learning experience in terms of learning some of the terminology. I'm not a sailor myself by trade. So re reading up on different types of ships and rigging. Um, and then also trying to figure out what was this geographic area that privateers were operating in. And as I did the research, I started to realize, okay, well, yes, they're operating on the coast of North America. They're also operating in the Caribbean. They're also operating off the coast of Africa. They're also operating off the coast of Europe, in the English Channel, in the Irish Sea. I mean, they are everywhere. And that was the interesting thing to me as a historian was that when I, you know, took U.S. history way back when initially in, in high school and everything, you learned about like, these are the 13 colonies. And it was Great Britain against her colonies. And it was a fight between, you know, Washington and Cornwallis. And it ends at Yorktown. And that is all true. This is not to negate the significance of what happens on land. But I think that there is a whole nother sphere or a whole nother theater in a sense of the conflict that is Atlantic um, that is global in nature and privateers are operating at the core of that theater. They are bringing the conflict to the steps of Britain, but they're also bringing the conflict to the Dutch and the Swedish and the French and the Portuguese and the, you know, the various islands of the Caribbean. So it, it's definitely something that as I was, as I was trying to research it, I was trying to pull in all those various aspects. And yet, even at the end of the project, still feeling like there was more out there, that there is more story to be told, um, that this is a, a, a bigger, that there are more questions to be asked and answered. And that hopefully my book was kind of the start of that process where it's like, hey, here's this group of actors. We know that they're doing interesting and important things during the war what else can we learn about them i was equal parts fascinated and sort of terrified uh you know to to read a little bit about the day-to-day -day life of a privateer or a sailor right it, it's, it's not for me right i mean clearly uh, you know reading this uh, i i made that determination um but I mean, there's incredible detail in your book. So can you just talk a little bit about the day-to-day -day life? I mean, um, you know, how, how do they eat? How do they get water? Um, these were obviously yeah. very important things. Uh, uh, and you detail them in your book. Absolutely. I will tell you, I, I'm, I would not be a privateer either. I admire them for, I mean, when you stand, uh, you know, on the beach somewhere and you're hanging out and you're looking out to sea, as I often tell my students, these are sailors who are going out there without GPS, without satellite, right? Without uh, ability to immediately, you know, send out an SOS to the Coast Guard or whomever. So deciding to go out on a privateer venture, I felt like took a, a certain type of person. Um, and I mean, we have to understand that, especially in New England, these are maritime societies. So these are people who are used to setting sail, who are used to living life out on the sea. But yeah, the day-to-day -day life can be thrilling and also boring at the same time, I feel as though. It just depends on the day. So some days you're out at sea, you're sailing, you're looking for a, a vessel, you're hoping it's an enemy vessel. Maybe you're hoping it's not an enemy vessel because you, you want a boring day. Um, so while you're out there, you end up, cleaning the side of the ship. 
uh, or cleaning the decks, right? You want to make sure that everything stays clean. You're mending sails because you can't sail without, you know, good rigging and good sails. Um, you're looking at, um, nature in a sense. There are dolphin sightings and whale sightings. There are sea turtles. They actually, there's uh, one journal where they catch a sea turtle uh, and they bring it on board to eat it. Because as you mentioned, you need to find different, uh, different food sources. So obviously when an investor or a uh, a ship's owner is outfitting his vessel. Um, and these are some of the interesting things I found uh, in the archives. There are page after page lists of everything that they need to have before the ship sets sail. You know, so obviously you're thinking weapons because they're going out there to attack enemy ships, right? So cannons, blunderbusses, swords, muskets, all of that. But then you also need to think about, okay, well, what are they going to need on the day to day? So they're going to need casks full of water. Um, how much water are they going to need? Well, how many guys are on the ship? How long is the cruise for? Um, oftentimes they're looking to send things like lemons or limes to put scurvy at bay. But if the lemons that come in are already rotten, well, you're not going to put them in the hold of your ship. So there go the lemons and the limes. So you send out something else instead, right? You look for different types of meat that you can salt and can you pack it and how long is it going to last? Um, and then when you get out to sea and you realize, you know, you're the captain and you're like, shoot, we're running out of food. What are we going to do? You send your guys to go fishing, right? You'll drop your like smaller y'all boat and out they'll go. There's one instance of a group of guys going out that are going shark that are going fishing and they, they catch a shark. It's like, uh, all right, I've never eaten a shark before. I know that there's some people who do, but when you're on a privateering vessel, you do, you do what you gotta do to survive. Um, there are other instances, obviously, if you're close to shore, privateer vessels put into shore and they go foraging on shore for food as well. Um, they play games to entertain themselves. Uh, like other sailors, they have traditions. So if you are crossing the tropics for the first time, for example, they do duck and, ducking and shaving where they like shave your head and they duck you in the water and bring you back up. Um, and it's like a whole thing. It's 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 kind, kind of like hazing, you might say, for privateers. Right. So they find ways to entertain themselves, um, to try to keep boredom at bay, but then they also have to deal with storms and damage to the ship. And then if there's a battle and there's an enemy vessel, I mean, it is a, as you mentioned, it is an interesting life to be a privateer for right. certain. Right. Oh, and, and I mean, it's in every page of your book. It's really fascinating. Um, I'm curious. I mean, there, there are a number of battle scenes in your book. Obviously the, the, the goal of a privateer is to kept capture enemy ships. Uh, uh, and so ultimately you're looking to fight and get in a battle. What does that look like on the high seas? I mean, I know they looked all yeah. different. I mean, you know, and every battle was the same, but, um, right. you know, yeah play that out if you don't you're, mind. you're looking so if you are an american privateer for example uh you are looking for enemy vessels hopefully it is a british merchant ship that is not well armed that would that would be the ideal um the thing though is that on the seas, there's nothing that says that you have to be truthful with what kind of ship you are, what you're carrying, or what nation you're from. So oftentimes, privateers, American privateers, don't know if it's an enemy vessel until they actually 
come up almost alongside it or are at least within you know spying distance in a sense to see well what what is this ship actually who who is on this ship there are times when privateers come along a ship and they think oh this is a a friend and the next thing you know the friend has shot you know an eight pounder into their hull and they're like what's going on here this is this isn't a friend it's foe and a, and a battle ensues um and sometimes those are very close quarter battles sometimes they end up boarding each other's vessel in a, in an attempt to take it uh other times it's a lot less complicated where a privateer comes along another vessel pretending to be you know like a if it's a British merchant ship that they're coming alongside, the American privateer pretends to be, you know, French or something, and they hail the ship and the captain comes on deck and they're chatting. And then the American privateer lowers the fake French flag, raises their American flag and goes, surprise, you're captured, we've got you. Uh, so <laughs> that's obviously the, the ideal situation where you don't have to really fight to take a prize. Um, sometimes battles could last for several hours. Sometimes they were over within a matter of moments. And whether or not you survived a battle was left to chance, right? Um, there are journal entries of there was one captain who got his leg, you know, shorn off or taken off by a cannonball that just came like rolling across the deck. Um, and for people who are like, that took it off. They're hot when they come out, right? So it's like, and they're very heavy and they're moving very quickly. So it just went, took it right off, clean, clean off. Um, he did not survive, sadly for him. Um, and yet there are other examples of, you know, people getting shot or wounded and they do survive, you know, and they're either taken prisoner or if it's a successful venture, they, they, they get to go home. So there is this inherent risk in terms of going on a privateering venture, going into battle. But the ultimate hope is that you go into battle, you take the prize, and then you're successful in returning the prize to land, to a friendly port. And once in that friendly port, the vessel is also legally condemned in an admiralty court. Because if you send the vessel in, but it's not legally condemned, then you've basically fought for nothing because the prize is not lawfully the privateers anymore. Right. I want to I want to ask you this the larger question that you already touched on in terms of, you know, the really this large geographic area that you're covering and this Atlantic world that's out there. And we joked before we started recording about the American Revolution isn't all about George Washington, right? So, yeah. you know, what what does this story about privateers tell us about the American Revolution? And you talk a lot about cultural exchanges. And I, you know, I sort of said, I, I've used it as an example, uh, teaching a course at SUNY Albany to, you know, to challenge some of the uh, boundaries that we have in our own mind of what the American Revolution is. So can you just talk more broadly about sort of what does this tell us about the revolution? Absolutely. I think this tells us that the revolution is a global conflict. Um, it is, yes, it is a civil war in the sense that it is between Britain and her colony, her British North American colonies. But the borders of the war go far beyond the 13 colonies. They take us into the waters of the Atlantic. They take us into the Caribbean, as I mentioned, to the coasts and shorelines of Africa, up into Europe. Um, and they draw in 
not only, you know, British American colonists and English troops and German mercenaries, but they draw in the French, they draw in the Spanish. I mean, there are examples of um, French and Spanish and Dutch various nationalities serving on American privateers because there are privateer vessels that set sail from Philadelphia, go travel across the Atlantic, are basically, you know, plying their trade uh, on the waters off the coasts of England, off the coast of France. Uh, they take a prize, they come into port, they lose a couple guys from their crew. So they're looking to, you know, bring on some new, new blood in a sense. And that new blood is international in nature. And so that's where that cultural exchange comes in that you were talking about. American privateers are operating and working side by side with other privateers, in a sense, of different nationalities, not just from Europe, but from the Caribbean. And so the experience of privateers is slightly different from those who who I don't want to say just experienced the war from the continental side of things, but there are obviously members of the continental army who stay in the colonies, whose feet do not leave, you know, North American soil. And that is ultimately then a different experience from those who get onto vessels, sail these waters, are landing on islands, are are learning about different, you know, civilizations or groups of people, different settlements, different cities. Um, experiencing, you know, European culture, European courts, uh, European privateers in different ways. So I think it just expands our understanding of what the revolution was and is even, um, because obviously the legacy of the revolution lasts beyond, you know, those final shots at Yorktown. We oftentimes people talk about the legacy of the revolution in the age of revolutions, you know, talking about teaching, you know, surveys. If you're teaching like a, a European history survey or Western Civ survey, there's that age of revolutions week where, you know, you've got the American revolution, the French revolution, the Haitian revolution. Um, and so I think it's important to understand that the American revolution itself it is international in its scale and also in its implications and in its overarching significance. And I think privateers like give us an opportunity to really hone in on that because they're a, a particular group, a particular, you know, subset of combatant that experiences the war in this way that may, maybe perhaps other like land forces do not. Is there a distinction to be made between American privateers in the revolutionary era and the American privateers that come after? Uh, I think I think you sort of make a point in your book that, you know, uh, after the war, privateers get a pretty bad reputation. Uh, is, is that the case? Yes, it is. I So pri American privateers in the revolution are operating at a crucial moment, because this is a moment when the United States is trying to found itself as an independent nation. And, you know, if you've seen the musical Hamilton is, you know, they Lin-Manuel Miranda tries to tell everybody like, you know, this this is the moment. Right. This this is the this is the birth of a nation. Right. And it is. And because of that. As the United States comes out of the war and is trying to establish itself among the main power players, they, the Continental Congress, the, the, the Confederation Congress after the Articles of Confederation are accepted, um, they're trying to establish themselves as a legitimate entity. 
And the last thing that they want to do is go to the British and say, hey, remember those privateers that we had during the war who attacked your Royal Navy, who attacked your merchant ships, who caused insurance rates to rise in London to such a fever pitch that there were actually British merchants who were calling for an end to the war, who were telling the British Parliament that they needed to make a peace. Like, remember those dudes that you all thought were that you called pirates, even though we commissioned them? Like, yeah, they're they're our awesome guys. We love them and we remember them and and we want to celebrate them. It was kind of more of a Shh, don't talk about them. We can't. We don't want to bring them back up because if we bring them back up, then we're highlighting an aspect of the war that maybe wasn't our proudest moment. Because truthfully, as admirable as some privateers were, there were also some privateers who weren't so admirable. There were guys who specifically went after neutral vessels. They knew that they were neutral, but they used the cover of their privateer commission to, to take them. And then they'd go to court and they'd claim, oh, well, we thought that the, the, the goods in the cargo hold belonged to the British and they're aiding the British. And because they're aiding the British, we're allowed to take them. So there were some... I guess you call them shady practices of privateers that made it challenging for their advocates and champions. And so eventually it just became easier in a sense for them to kind of like fade back into their pre-war lives where they were merchants and they were slave traders um, and they were just, you know, regular sailors. And as we mentioned earlier, there's no battlefield to commemorate. There's no plaque that, I mean, granted, it takes a while for revolutionary battlefields to be commemorated to begin with. And that's a, that's a whole nother story. But the ocean, you're not putting up like a statue, you know, in the middle of the Atlantic. Um, to some of these guys saying like, yay, come visit, come visit this site. They were so awesome. Um, and so for the, for the founders, in some ways, they, they had to write privateers out of it. They couldn't champion these kind of shady ventures. Instead, they champion who else but George Washington, right? The, the father of the nation, the first president, his continental army that was this ragtag group of guys that came together and against all odds defeated the greatest power in the world. And here we are and woohoo and privateers, you know, get, get moved aside. The book is Sadly. the untold war at sea America's revolutionary, uh, revolutionary privateers, Kylie Holbert. Thank you so much. It's a fantastic book. I hope everybody uh, takes a look at it. Uh, Kylie, thank, thank you. Thank you so much. much for having me. I appreciate it.